Arsenal for Democracy is freely available weekly at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple and Stitcher. And we're supported by some listeners at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy for $3 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee, and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is your land. This man is my land. California. New York Island. The Redwood Forest. Gulf Stream Waters. This land was made you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode 448, recorded on Sunday, November 13th, 2022. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me on the line from Idaho, as always, is Rachel. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Bill. The modern closed auto rack rail car, dating to the 1980s after three decades of development, is today an omnipresent site across U.S. freight railroad lines. They help to transport to dealerships 75% of the 15 million or so new light vehicles sold in the United States each year, along with over a million more U.S.-built vehicles being moved to seaports for overseas sales. These specialized rail cars, not unlike shipping containers, represent a standardization for efficient and protected transportation of a highly valuable finished good cargo that is manufactured in large identical quantities and which was once very vulnerable to theft and vandalism before this innovation. The auto rack is also a key component of the global light automobile supply chain because it allows the consolidation of production centers into locations convenient to the producer instead of dispersed for the convenience of the consumer. This site location issue became significant to U.S. automakers with the changes in environmental regulation, labor laws and wage standards, trade agreements, and transoceanic shipping over the course of the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s. Without the advent of the auto rack, it seems unlikely that so many automakers, both U.S.-based and U.S. subsidiaries of foreign companies, would have been able to locate or relocate their manufacturing operations into southern right-to-work states with lower prevailing wage and labor standards or monitoring compared to the previous model of spreading production across the country in order to provide close proximity supply to auto dealers. Consider, for example, the recent discovery that subcontractors in Alabama for the U.S. production subsidiary of Hyundai were using child laborers as young as 12 in factories. So now I'm going to quote from a few different articles discussing the movement uh, southward of both U.S. and foreign car uh, manufacture. Um, So quoting from a Slate article from 2008, how foreign car factories have transformed the American South. The states in the Southeast had plenty to offer, large tracts of undeveloped land with road, rail, air, and sea access, fewer snow days, and federally subsidized power from the Tennessee Valley Authority. Above all, these states had long-standing cultures that made it difficult for unions to organize. And um, we wanted to really get into the timeline of, of when these manufacturers moved to the southern U.S. Um, so I found a CNBC article, um, and quoting from that, Among the first to invest in the southern states was Ford Motor in the 1950s and 1960s in Kentucky, followed by foreign-based, or transplant, automakers, starting with Nissan Motor, which established a plant in Smyrna, Tennessee in 1983. Others, such as General Motors, Subaru, Toyota Motor, and BMW followed suit through the 1990s. 
More have followed since then, including recent announcement by Hyundai Motor and Rivian Automotive to build multi-billion dollar plants in Georgia. And I found one glaring omission there. Um, I myself am a Volkswagen driver, so I was curious when Volkswagen started um, producing cars in the US. And I found a Fast Company article. Um, so Volkswagen was one of the first foreign car companies to begin manufacturing cars in the US, and they opened a Pennsylvania plant in 1978. But they didn't join the southward move until 2008, when they opened a plant in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Today, a vehicle can be built anywhere in North America and shipped anywhere long distance by rail, and then, if needed by ship, safely, securely, and relatively quickly. And that's because of auto racks. The cargo automobiles are typically offloaded at gated regional distribution hubs, serving a number of dealerships within striking distance for a shorter haul truck rack to take them the final distance in small batches. For example, for a while, there was a Ford hub in Ayer, Massachusetts, which is now closed, which served basically all Ford dealerships in New England. In many cases, as in the container business, the auto rack trains will also first deliver to a much bigger transshipment hub for the automaker, either inland or on the coast, where a large run of one particular factory's product can be reshuffled into train loads or shiploads bound for a single destination. It is rare for a single destination to want tons of the exact same product, which means there is not enough business to send a full train load from the factory to the endpoint, but there might be enough for a full train load of a bunch of different factories' products to that endpoint, and therefore, shuffling the loads around at an interim point makes sense. That transshipment model also further encourages consolidation of production into a smaller number of factories in one place, as opposed to the old setup of producing the same model of car locally in many different parts of the country. The current design of long, enclosed, bi-level or tri-level auto racks replaced open flat cars, including double-decker flat cars, or special box cars. The special box cars were an enormous pain to load and unload and couldn't carry many vehicles per car. The flat cars were able to carry more and load or unload somewhat more easily, but the vehicles on board were extremely vulnerable to damage, including simply flying gravel or weather, and they were very inviting to thieves and vandals. Circus trains and long military transport trains were fairly successful haulers of vehicles by rail flat cars, and of course, long-haul trucks were beginning to appear sometimes on the piggyback trailer flat cars in the 1950s, as we discussed in our first containerization history episode. But the retail auto industry had different needs from all these other re rail transport users. Railroads and rail car manufacturers continued experimenting. By the late 1950s, it was becoming clear that several design elements would be ideal for transporting new light vehicles to retail dealers. A bi-level or tri-level rack to carry more cars without being too tall to clear existing bridges and tunnels. Roll-on, roll-off end-loading doors instead of side-loading doors like the special box cars. And enclosed racks for protection, as well as a box length that maximized vehicle capacity without being too long to clear existing track curves. Interestingly, as a result of this iterative solution to the problem, Today, the underlying flat cars are owned and leased out by the special monopoly company TTX, while the physical rack and shield system around and on top of those flat cars are owned by the railroad company itself, making each auto rack car a joint partnership between TTX and a specific rail carrier, which we'll circle back to in a moment so you can understand that model better. 
By the 1960s, multiple railroads and their suppliers were making and trying out auto rack cars that were relatively similar to what we would recognize today with some design variations. These were capable of carrying a dozen 1960s full-size light vehicles or a dozen and a half compact cars. The protection question remained a big problem, with most designs merely offering a mild mesh or a few plates to repel debris. A sturdy enclosure did not happen until the mid-1970s. Auto racks would now have doors and corrugated steel siding. But in fact, even then, they weren't fully enclosed, actually, until the mid-1980s, when enough railroad trackage modifications were made across the country to allow auto racks the necessary bridge and tunnel clearance for roofs to protect the merchandise on the top deck. Non-roof auto rack designs remained in service for a while, Uh, for use on routes that had not been upgraded yet. The standardization of design also meant that every vehicle could be transported by any auto rack, and automakers were expected to comply with these size specifications rather than needing specific auto rack designs for specific lines of cars. On the other hand, that was also basically the expectation in the early automobile era when they needed to fit into a boxcar sometimes. As an additional layer of protection today, the automobiles being loaded onto the auto racks are often covered in a white plastic material before delivery to dealers, or at least before leaving the regional distribution hubs. There are now four internal configurations, all sharing a basic external design, which can carry a variety of vehicle types and quantities. The lowest density auto racks are a single enclosed level for moving very, a few very large bulky vehicles like buses and farm equipment. The highest density auto racks are the Automax version at maximum configuration for three levels of compact vehicles which can cram in 26 vehicles. The most middle of the road configurations support either three decks of 15 sedans total or two decks of 10 larger vehicles like SUVs, minivans, and pickup trucks. And those statistics are according to the uh, customer shipping information webpage from the Union Pacific Railroad's website. So let's talk dimensions. The bi and tri-level flat cars are 89 feet long, while the uni-level flat cars for those large bulky vehicles are 82 feet long. And the supersized Automax cars are a whopping 145 feet long, and they are a double-length car that is articulated over a single middle truck So they are able still to navigate those curving tracks. And those statistics are from the TTX website, which we will go into more a little later. But I wanted to to highlight one of the designs that is not in use today. And it was kind of a weird, crazy idea. Um, So there was in the 1960s and 70s, there was an auto rack concept called the Verta Pack. And um, as you can guess from the name, They were um, cars that could transport automobiles um, vertically instead of horizontally. So they were designed specially for transporting Chevrolet Vegas, and the VertiPak could transport up to 30 compact cars uh, faced nose down, and they could shave up to 40% off of transportation costs. Um, And this is from an article on Haggerty.com, and as always, all the uh, sources will be linked in the show notes. So quoting from the article, there was one little problem, however, Chevy wanted to deliver each Vega in ready to drive condition, which meant topping off all fluids before loading them onto the train. According to Railway Age, in order to stack the cars without the fluids leaking, 
Vega engineers designed a special oil pan baffle to prevent oil from entering the number one cylinder of the car's inline four engine. Batteries had filler caps located high up on the rear edge of the case to prevent acid spills. The carburetor float bowl had a special tube that drained gasoline into the vapor canister during shipment, and the windshield washer bottle stood at a 45 degree angle. Plastic spacers were wedged between the powertrain and chassis to prevent damage to engine and transmission mounts. The wedges were removed when cars were unloaded. The doors were closed with a forklift tractor. Although the Vega wasn't a great car, it had a reputation for unreliability, rust, and poor engine durability. It managed to last seven years, and of course, its short wheelbase allowed for innovative shipping. When Vega and its rebadged sibling, the Pontiac Aster, were discontinued in 1977, so were the Vertipak racks. As the experimental designs consolidated from the mid-1950s to the mid-1980s, and that current design that's used everywhere today, eventually most manufacturers abandoned the field, leaving only the trailer train company, which became TTX Company in 1991, and which is now a monopoly supplier and co-owner with the rail carriers, as previously mentioned. Trailer Train itself had been a joint venture originally of the Pennsylvania Railroad and Norfolk and Western Railway. Today, TTX is itself owned jointly by nine U.S., Canadian, and Mexican railroad companies. TTX also in turn owns Railbox, a similar co-ownership pool model for boxcars, and Railgon, which provides pooled gondola cars. That would be for things like coal and gravel. The main business of TTX, however, is flat cars, including auto racks, and intermodal piggyback carriers. This pooling arrangement, where the partner-slash-owner rail companies pay for a proportional number of auto racks on top of TTX flat cars, based on their projected share of automobile shipping in North America, is regulated by the U.S. government's Surface Transportation Board, the successor to the Interstate Commerce Commission. Under the pooling arrangement, the auto racks once leased and paid for are freely shared between all the railroads, so no one has to keep track of which specific carrier's auto rack is being assigned to a delivery. And so again, just to be clear here, as we referred to this company TTX as being a monopoly earlier, that is technically true, but they're not an independent monopoly either. They are essentially a special pool cartel between all of the other major railroads and a couple of smaller railroads. So the uh, Surface Transportation Board has extended TTX's flat car pooling authority four times. So they are the sole authority um, and the sole company that controls the flat car pooling. And the most recent extension was conferred on October 1st, 2014. So the STB gave TTX a 15-year extension at that time. And I wasn't able to find the official language of um, STB's announcement because their website was undergoing maintenance, but I was able to find a press release um, talking about this from Railway Age. So quoting from that, STB listed numerous benefits of the pool, including promotion of research and development in new equipment, cost control as a result of standardized repair and maintenance, capital savings through more efficient use, and the increased responsiveness of the rail industry to the dynamic changes in the North American Railroad Network. So through this pooling agreement, they there really is um, more efficient use of the flat cars, and it really reduces the amount of time that the flat cars are unloaded. So there's they're always traveling with cargo, 
And once it reaches its destination, it can quickly be transferred to another engine, um, another rail lines engine. And so that way it's really reducing those, those empty miles that we really talked about a lot during the containerization episodes. You really want to minimize the, the empty miles traveled as much as possible. And so this pooling agreement really helps with that. And because of this arrangement where the companies all own TTX and then also own the auto racks on top of the leased flat cars, they can, because of the way they share it around, you don't have to like unload the cars when you leave a certain railroad or anything like that. It does not matter which railroad's logo is on the auto rack. They all are treated as if it's one big thing because it essentially is one big pool. So they just, as you said, shuffle them around back and forth as needed so they can, again, minimize the, uh, you know, the wastage and, and keep them uh, full rather than empty as much as possible. Um, it's, you know, an interesting arrangement, I guess you would say. Uh, and... It is sort of complicated to describe it, as I said, because it is simultaneously a monopoly company and also not an independent company. It's owned by the railroads themselves under this Surface Transportation Board authority that is granted over for quite long periods. But this is because this is the one company that emerged out of a smaller joint partnership out of that experimental era as basically the maker, right? There were various other companies that had other designs. You know, Pullman was making auto rack designs for a while, just to name an example that most people would have at least heard of. Uh, and then various other companies that you might be less familiar with if you don't know that much uh, about railroads, uh, especially railroads 50 or 60 years ago. And this is the company that at the time, you know, originally uh, Pennsylvania Railroad and Norfolk and Western, as I said, uh, that emerges out of this. And eventually all the railroads go in on this together with the federal government's approval and say, we're just going to have this one company do it. They're going to be the specialists. We're all going to have the same flat car design. We're all going to have the same auto rack that gets dropped down on top of the flat car. And we're going to pay into it based on a percentage of our estimated traffic share of automobile movements across the U.S. And then we're going to take the according profits out as well when you completed the shipments. That's the setup, essentially, is that you get this unusual regulated monopoly under the control of this oligopoly of a small number of railroads. That's how we move these automobiles all around the country, which again, I mean, it varies from year to year, but generally somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 million new cars sold a year. And then also, and that includes not only U.S. manufactured ones, but also ones coming in from overseas. And then you also have to move the cars that are made in the U.S. but sold overseas themselves. And you have to move those to seaports. And that is why we have so much auto rack traffic going around the country all the time now. Um, now, Rachel, there is one other significant example in the United States uh, of auto racks that's a bit of an outlier. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so there is one um, auto train available for passenger rail, and it's Amtrak's auto train, which has been operating since the early 1980s after an unsuccessful privately owned 1970s auto train failed in 1981. So from the Amtrak website, quote, the auto train transports you and your car or van, motorcycle, SUV, small boat, jet ski, or other recreational vehicle nonstop from the Washington DC area to Florida, just outside of Orlando. And it's the only motor rail service in the United States. And it covers 855 miles with nonstop service, replacing the need to drive that section of I-95 
and it uh, services nearly 200,000 passengers per year, which is pretty impressive. I wasn't aware that this service even existed, so it's 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 pretty impressive. Um, I I wonder if if there's ever gonna be in any expansion of this service, or if it's just gonna be that that two stop um, line. There was an attempt to have the private service cover a different line, and that was about when it all bit the dust. So that probably answers that question. The thing with this one particular route is we know there's a lot of people who take their cars down to Florida or up from Florida, depending on where they have it registered, uh, you know, every single year because they have a second home and they go along this one I-95 corridor. So if you have the train service there, you know, that replaces it. And we know that there's people coming from a long enough distance that the nonstop model makes sense. Cause obviously you're not going to unload and, and load cars along the way that would slow things down too much. Um, I also, it's interesting that you, you pay a premium to get a, a more primo spot on the auto rack so that your car is unloaded faster at the end. Um, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, so before we wrap up, and again, as you said, we'll have all the notes up at arsenalfordemocracy.com when this episode goes live, and you can check out some of the links, including there will be a link that I uh, included that has a lot of vintage photos of auto racks, uh, including some bad derailments, which we didn't really talk much about, uh, what happens when the train uh, flips over while carrying all these expensive new cars. Uh, but there's a lot of interesting different types of auto racks in those photos. Uh, but anyway, before we wrap up, uh, we do need to at least take several minutes here to, to talk big picture again. Um, one thing I want to emphasize here is some of this episode is fairly speculative on our part because there's not as much stuff written as you would expect about the last 50 years, basically, of rail transportation in terms of histories. There's certain specific elements, and you get web pages here and there about it, but there's not as many um, books written about that topic. And certainly, to my knowledge, there has not been a deep dive on the auto rack in the way that there was for the container ships when we read that book, The Box, and did a three-part series on that. Um but there's definitely some clear similarities to the the shipping container development. It's happening at the same time, essentially, uh, basically the late 1950s, so a few years after that. Um, you had talked a little bit, I think, on that uh, those episodes about the um, piggyback stuff. So again, the difference there is you are loading that on with like a crane directly onto the flat car. It's just you know, like a truck trailer usually as opposed to like a car. Um, and But in some cases, like we mentioned, the circus trains and the military trains, like you'd load a tank that way, right? You'd put it on the flat car. You don't have a rack over it. You just send it on its way. And in some cases, you have a special flat car that's lower so it can get better bridge clearances. Um, that is happening from uh, the, the development of the what's now the modern auto rack is happening from the late 1950s into the early 1980s, very similar to the period that we talked about in terms of the rise and revolution uh, associated with containers uh, for transoceanic shipping purposes and even, you know, inland waterways in some cases. But this is the the big piece as well, uh, in terms of this specific industry anyway, about moving these very lucrative goods around, these finished goods, automobiles, uh, from place to place within the United States and now more broadly North America, especially in the post-NAFTA period when you have a lot of production sites in Canada and Mexico as well. What were some of the things that you got out of this? Because again, some of this is speculative on our part in terms of the relationship that this has on moving production sites. But like, I think it is very clear that 
you used to have, you know, almost every northern state in the U.S. would have multiple auto plants for multiple companies. And, you know, even like Delaware would have multiple factories for different companies like Chrysler, GM, that kind of thing. And a lot of those plants closed down and got relocated places, most of them within North America. Some of that is NAFTA related, but some of that starts happening earlier. And auto racks seem uh, indivisible from that. Right. And I think uh, one of the major parallels that I saw was just that that kind of consolidation and standardization was so important um, to container shipping. And it also became very important to like the flat car design, the rack itself, the design for that. So it, it had to be standardized um, to make it more efficient. Like there were a lot of fault starts that just weren't very efficient for loading and unloading. And so it quickly consolidated to a standard design that everyone could agree on. And, and um, it sounds like it was pretty much like business driven, much like the container, the container standardization was pretty business side driven, not really a regulatory body that, that uh, created the standards, but the businesses themselves created these standards. Yeah. And beyond the, the need for, you know, that reliability that comes with standardization, you also have that security element. I mean, we talked a lot about the, the fact that before shipping containers happen, there was always expected to be this pretty significant percentage of cargo going missing on the docks because somebody broke into a pallet of something and helped themselves to it. And that just having a locked shipping container dramatically reduces the amount of theft that's happening on the docks. Similarly, we have you know, or cars getting stolen in transit. Um, you also get the kind of slightly later phenomenon of the, you know, the rising crime, you know, aspect of the 1970s, that mythology, at least, who knows how real that was or not in this case. But, you know, oh, the, t you know, teens are going to be throwing rocks and hobos are going to be riding in the cars. And, you know, because uh, that's more comfortable than riding in the in a box car. And, you know, what if kids are spray painting and throwing gravel and, you know, like all those kind of things. I think there's a certain... Um, way that it signifies the era. But I was also thinking like the other interesting implications here is does car usage and density also change in the United States uh, as a result of this? I, I'm not an expert on this at all. So like if we have listeners who are real big, like automotive history heads, I'd be really interested to know more about this in terms of how it plays in. But if you think of the stereotype, right, people in the South, the Southeastern US, I'm talking about in this case, would, you know, the, the, the image you have, at least in popular culture, is the guys driving the, the, the old Model Ts and Model As and the other real old, you know, uh, beat up trucks or the jalopies that they had fixed up and everything. That points to a lack of, uh, if that's in fact reality, and I don't have, you know, I don't know where to look up the numbers for this. That points to not having as high of a density of newer cars being sold regularly in those places. And I'm sure that there was an urban rural difference as well there. But if you think about it, right, if it's hard to one of the big effects that we see with shipping containers is the dramatic cost reductions in shipping stuff. Now, all of a sudden you can send things anywhere and it's affordable to everyone. Right. Similarly, I would expect that one of the features of having the auto rack available is previously it would have been very expensive to load up uh, these cars, whether it was on an exposed and unprotected 
flat car, but also, or, or, or previously a box car. And we said those were really hard to load, especially if you had to sort of get them in sideways and then shove them along because they, you know, you weren't, you didn't have end loading doors unless you had a specially designed car as they sometimes did, right? That drives up the cost significantly compared to like, if you're just a middle-class guy in Chicago, Detroit, Wilmington, Delaware, wherever you want to give an example that has auto production nearby, someone can easily get a car affordably because you don't have that extra shipping cost. I'm wondering if someone in Atlanta is going to be paying the same price. Is someone in Montgomery, Alabama going to be paying the same price? What if you really live out in the sticks in rural Mississippi? Are you going to be paying the same price? Probably not. I'm guessing that the dealers probably had to charge a lot more, and that leads to some amount of class stratification on the ownership. Again, this is pure speculation at this point, and also might lead to a lower number of sales volume overall. Today, and I think certainly for quite a few decades now at this point, probably, you know, 30, 40 years, I don't think you would see much difference substantially. And then, of course, we now have a lot of these factories in the South. But as as you said, with the exception of Ford, it's really not until the 80s that you start and then even more so in the 90s that you start seeing this movement of auto production factories at all into the southern states, which implies that there was a big transportation barrier to getting them there because they weren't having that production in those states up until that point. As a result of the auto rack, suddenly it becomes very convenient to relocate and consolidate a bunch of production sites, and you don't lose that ability to send them anywhere in the U.S., not just into the southern states, but also to send them back north to Michigan or Illinois or Wisconsin or New York or New England states or Delaware or Maryland or wherever, right? You can now do that much more easily because of the auto rack, and I would be very interested to see what impact that had on car ownership, uh, especially in the middle class and in more remote, less urban areas uh, in some other parts of the United States. I really don't know uh, as much about that. And, and so I'd be curious to hear from listeners if they have any information. But this is one that's a more speculative episode for us just because there's not as good information available. In fact, while I was doing the research, I would find various articles talking about the history of auto racks where some of the stuff was just BS, right? So I hope I got the details right in terms of the facts that we presented today. But some of it, People are just kind of making stuff up or kind of speculatively guessing on things. I found errors in things. I could be wrong, but I don't know of a book about auto racks. There might be one. You know, I certainly didn't find one in the library system when I looked. And I've asked around as well. I, you know, past guest Justin Rosniak, you know, I asked him and he didn't know of any books to that effect. And a lot of these books that are written in the last 50 years on rail history tend to basically be glorified photo books right? Coffee table photo books that don't actually have a lot of like really serious text or to the extent that they do, it's a hagiography hey, of like some particular guy who really, you know, led this, that, or the other effort or was the CEO or president of some particular rail company in a particular era. And it's not really a critical look. Uh, and it definitely doesn't get into the processes and the material consequences of it like we're talking about today. Well, and uh, I just wanted to point out that one of the main factors of the Vertipak concept was Chevy wanted to keep um, the cost of the of the Vega under $2,000 or around $2,000, which today is probably about $14,000, $15,000. And so it you can't really find a starter car at that point price level so much anymore it seems like everybody's um putting so many features on their cars that you can't really 
find a nice affordable starter car, uh, a new affordable starter car so much, um, you kind of have to go used. So I think um, that was that probably really expanded car ownership, just having that nice affordable starter model that was available because you could shave off 40% off of transportation costs. So you could afford to to price it at that point. Any other closing thoughts on the auto rack? Yeah, I was previously unaware that it was even a thing. I, I've seen the the truck trailer auto racks a lot, but I've never really seen an, a rail auto rack before. So this was very interesting to actually learn what this was. All right. Well, thanks for coming on this week to talk about this. Glad to be here.